0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time today, I'm so glad you're here. We started a series through this New Testament letter, called Hebrews a few weeks ago, and we find ourselves midway through chapter 2 today. We're going to pick up in verse 10, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, and I think probably only explain the first few verses, and then we'll get to the rest next week, Lord willing. We started this church 18 years ago, April 17th 2005 was our first public service up in Harris County at the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse. And when we first started the church, planted the church, I was worried about a lot of things um, about the service. And I'm not diminishing these things; these are important things. I would really, I was cared a lot about, you know, how everything looked in the building. Um, Paul Fincher can tell you lots of jokes about how when we would get there early to set up all the equipment and the worship team would be practicing, I would be kind of anxious because I I didn't feel like everybody was sort of exhibiting the amount of gusto and energy that I I sort of wanted in the practice, and so I was just so stressed out, and I think eventually Paul just told me, Brad, you're going to have to leave the building before the service starts. You're, You're making me nervous. Just go somewhere. And so I would just kind of get in my truck, and I would drive around <laughs> in circles around the old Mountain Hill schoolhouse until Paul told me it was okay to come back in. That's not that much of an exaggeration. I, I just was so into so many things, just going everything straight, and the bulletins folded. And, and th- those are good things. But as I've gotten older, um, there's a burden on my heart that when you come to Crosspoint, that you hear the good news, the most important news of what Jesus has done for you. I think that's what every. we've alluded to it through prayer and song already, that's what we need to hear. And if you could boil down the message of Hebrews into just one or two sentences, it would be that the preacher, the author of Hebrews is reminding these first century Jewish Christians who are trusting in Christ, they grew up under the old covenant and they have heard the message of the gospel and they understand that all of the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of Moses' words, all of the sacrificial system, all of the priesthood, all of it was really just a shadow that has been fulfilled and realized in the person and work of Christ, that he's the one that everything is pointing to. He is the only one that can make you right with God. He is the high priest. He's the son of God that's come to die for you. And trusting in him is better than anything else. In fact, it's not only better, it's the only way. That's more than a couple sentences, but you get my point. So if the writer of Hebrews, if we could boil it down, he would be saying to his audience and he would be saying to us today that Jesus is better. That the good news of the gospel is true. It's worth it. Focus on that. Don't don't lose focus on who Jesus is. I think he takes 13 chapters to explain that to us. But here in chapter 2, especially the second part of chapter 2, starting in verse 10 through 18, I think is the very heart of his argument. I think he's going to base everything that he says in the rest of the letter on this paragraph or two. And so I want us to get it. And my burden is not so much that everything goes well today for you, although I I really hope it does, but that you understand this every time you come into this church and gather with this congregation. So let me read it, and let me then pray and work our way through it. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, as we approach this text, we approach it with awe and wonder and fear and trembling. These are holy truths. These are holy things. I don't want to, I don't want to mishandle them, Lord. So help me, help these people. As Paul prayed in Ephesians, enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might know and see and taste the hope of your calling in Christ, a glorious inheritance of the riches of the saints in Christ Jesus. As we finish working through at least part of this text today and as we come to the Lord's table this morning to receive communion, which all believers are invited to do, we pray that we would see and savor Jesus. Help us now, Lord. Lord, we're here, we're physically here, We have physical copies of your Bible here. It's your word. We believe it's true. But there's something we don't see. It's your spirit. It's blowing. It's moving. It abides in your people. Lord, move like a mighty rushing wind in in our hearts today. in this church rouse us from our slumber. And let us encounter Jesus, I pray, in his holy name. Amen. All right, I have four points today. Point number one is verse 10. Point number two is verse 11. Point number three is verse 12. And point number four is verse 13. Let's go. Verse 10. For it was fitting. Now let's just think about that word fitting here. Some of you may have a translation of the Bible that says that it was entirely appropriate. That he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. If you go back to verse nine of Hebrews chapter two that we've covered last week, he ends that section by saying that by the grace of God, speaking of Jesus in his incarnation, he might taste death for everyone. And he's a good preacher. He understands his audience and he knows that He's writing to a people that have grown up in this Greco-Roman philosophy culture. And it would be very hard for them to even have a category to understand this God. Because he's not just writing to Jews. He knows this is going to be read by Gentiles and people that have no connection with the Old Testament. They have no connection of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, who we know is Jesus. And they're just wondering, how can this God who claims to be God actually be the one that suffers for us? And so he's say, no, 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 it's appropriate. It's entirely appropriate. He's answering the unstated objection of this scandalous way of thinking, which is the gospel that God himself would suffer in the place of his creation. And the logic of the author is really that this is the only way it could be. It's fitting. It's entirely appropriate. It has to be this way because God's holiness, the height of God's holiness and the depth of man's sinfulness demands for. In fact, if we think about it, and I think that's the point of this letter and the point really of the gospel, is that the only thing that can bridge the gap between God's holiness and man's sinfulness is the holiness of God himself. And so he's saying really that the cross that he's about to explain, the work of Jesus in his life, and his death and his resurrection and his reigning exaltation is a necessity. Here's one way you can think of the necessity of the cross. Here's one category that I want you to have to think about the gospel as you read it in the Bible, is that we are saved by God. I think everybody understands that. We don't save ourselves. We are saved by God, but we are also saved from God. And we're saved for God. So we're saved by God, from God, and for God. Now, now I think most of us instinctively know that we're saved by God and we're saved for God. But it's that that middle phrase, we're saved from God primarily. And I think that's what he's getting at here. It's entirely appropriate. It's fitting. There could be no other way. You see, it's, it's not just a Star Wars universe where the forces of good overpower the forces of evil and and. and God barely wins in the end. No, our greatest foe is not sin, flesh, and the devil. It's ultimately the holiness of God that we will stand before him someday. He's our biggest problem. And the only answer to that problem, the only thing that's fitting, the only thing that's appropriate, is the only thing that can save us from God, is God himself. Now that's a radically God-centered way of looking at the universe, and that's why I think he picks up this next phrase from whom and by whom all things exist. That he, look at that, that he, who's the he here that's doing this? I want you to see the interworkings of the plan of God that we see in verse 10. It was fitting that he, who is he? Who's the he? Which person of the Trinity is this referring to? Well, let's let's keep reading and let's just logically deduce what this means here. That he, from whom and by whom all things Exists that could be God the Father. It could be the trying. Who is it in bringing many sons to glory? Should make, should act upon the founder of their salvation, which is Christ. Because we know later it says right after that that He makes Him perfect through suffering. So I think the He going on here in the beginning of verse ten is speaking specifically about God the Father. That there's something going on in. The triune God's mind in his plan where the father is doing something to the son. He's acting upon him. He's making the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Well, what what are just the implications of this? Let's just kind of zoom out for a second and just kind of go pre time. We see in Ephesians chapter one where we get a glimpse of this plan of God even before the creation of the world to do it this way. Ephesians 1, Paul says, even as he chose us in him. So I think this is we're picking up mid-sentence here, but this is talking about how the Father chose us, his people, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So there's this, there's this plan of God that existed in the mind and heart of God even before the fall, even before creation, so before salvation was even necessary, before the creation that would fall even fell to need saving, God had a plan. We see this at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world. Speaking of the Antichrist here, and he's talking about this plan of God, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, I just want you to pick up. There's a lot we could talk about in Revelation there. Don't get sidetracked by that. Come Wednesday night if you want to hear more about that. But you see here, there's this picture in to the mystery and beauty of the plan of God even before the foundation of the world. There is apparently this book of life Of the Lamb who was slain before there was a creation, before there was a devil who could tempt us, before there was an Adam and Eve who were tempted in the garden and fell, before there was you and me who were born in sin by nature and by choice, before the necessity of the cross, God had a plan. Why is this important? Why is this important? You're like, okay, Brad, this is, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. But how is this helpful? How does this help me on Tuesday morning when I wake up and I'm in the valley and there's something that's staring me down that is absolutely stressing me out? Because we remember this, that no matter what I am facing, God has a plan for his people. It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, had this plan before it even became necessary. Listen to this old confession of the church, the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is a a question and answer way of learning. That's what catechism means. It's not just something that Catholics do. Protestants have been doing this for a long time, coming out of the Protestant Reformation. And this is called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's called that because it was written in Heidelberg, Germany. If you're ever stationed in Germany in the army, you should go to Heidelberg and get a little bit of church history. This is a glorious confession of the church in fact we have this question and answer in our foyer there by the couches don't just go sit in the couches and spill your juice actually read the sign that's up on the wall it's glorious this is glorious and this is question number one i think it's the most wonderful question in all of the historic catechisms of the protestant church here it is question what is your only comfort in life and in death answer, listen to this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. We'll get to that next week. He also and why is that important how does that relate to that he i mean i'm just i'm just extrapolating heidelberg catechism question and answer number 1 from that he because it's this system it's this glorious plan of god that he from whom and by whom all things exist instituted as a covenant with himself to do to bring many sons to glory that if you're a christian you're included in for your good and his glory before the creation of the earth. So if God has promised himself, that's really what's going on here. God has a, a pact. He's, he's made a covenant with himself To do this, if God has promised to do this, if he's determined to do this before it's even necessary, then everything that happens as a result of making that necessary is part of his plan to bring you, part of that, many sons of glory all the way home to himself. So put that in your stressful Tuesday morning pipe and smoke it. Jennifer hates when I say that, but I like that. I like it. I like it. I don't advocate smoking. I think it's terrible for you, but you get the picture. Come on, we toke on all sorts of other bad stuff, don't we? We just breathe in the smoke of stress and worry. We breathe in the stress that we think that what I do in this moment is the determine, it makes every, yes, God gives us minds to make good decisions, but there's a greater smoke in the air. There's a bigger scent out there. There's something that we have the privilege to to take into our lungs and it is the beautiful oxygen of the gospel that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's what a comprehensive statement that is he's just giving us a little doctrine of God there that nothing nothing, there's not a molecule in, in the farthest stretch of the universe that isn't obeying its purpose according to God's sovereignty there's not a wicked ruler, and this is mysterious. Tyler prayed so beautifully and pastorally this morning for these people in Turkey and Syria. Friends, I don't understand this. This goes beyond our understanding. But there's not a, there's not a teutonic plate. There's not a there's not a hurricane wind. There, there's, not a, there's not a tornado. There's there's not a, a cell that gets diagnosed as cancerous. There's nothing, there's nothing in all of creation that exists outside of his sovereign control and he works it all together. It's from him, it's for him, all things exist by him and he's bringing every activity, everything that happens every tangible thing, every motivation and intention of every good and bad person. He's bringing it in his beautiful mixture of his glorious good sovereignty to bring about the optimal display of his glory and the optimal eternal good of his people. He's doing that. Because the Bible gives us that picture of that—that's who He is. That's what it means to be God. And here He zeroes it down. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory. Now, here's—I here's, here's this, I want you to think about this word "bringing." It's a—it's a the ing there. It's—it's it's happening. It's a gerund. It's—it's it's in the middle. It's—it's it's going on. It's—it's a, it's a process. It's. It's a journey. So salvation, the bringing of many sons to glory isn't merely past tense in this verse. It's still ongoing through the ages, but even in your life, the salvation, we know the, the coming all the way to glory is not a zap. And there you are into heaven. You 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 become a Christian, you're saved, and then there's this process by which you live and you wade through the muck in your life that you still have to endure even though you will be brought all the way home to glory. Why would God do it that way? Well, friends, he brings many sons to glory in this slow, tedious way to put on display for those that he is calling to himself each new day as a kind of witness to the supremacy of Christ over and against this world. And God has determined that it brings more glory to himself to leave us in this process than actually just zapping us up. He's bringing many sons to glory from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And there are many, there are many people that he's bringing to glory. And then what does he say? He says, how does he do this? That He should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Now, this is stunning. We've hit on this a few times. I think you get this point, but I just want to keep this in front of you because I want you to see it. In what sense does Jesus, the perfect one, need to become perfect? Well, not morally at all. Jesus has no moral imperfection that need to be it needed to be improved. I mean, we'll read in, in, in a little bit when we get to Hebrews chapter 4 that he is the great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's been tempted his way every way as we are, yet without sin. He is completely perfect. So whatever needs to be made in Jesus, whatever needs to be made perfect, can't be speaking about his morality or his ethics or his, his obedience. That's already perfect. But it's speaking about his actual mission. He had to become like us. He actually had to become fully man. He had to actually endure. He had to actually resist temptation. And thereby, he becomes the founder of our salvation, the the fountain, the beginning. Another way to translate that word founder from Greek into English would be a champion, to become the, the hero, the pioneer of our salvation. He actually had to do it, and he has done it. It says through suffering, he became the founder of their salvation. He was made perfect through suffering. Now, we have to wrestle with this. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Have you ever thought about that? Why couldn't God just kind of shake the etch-a-sketch, you know, so to speak, and just clear it out and then just send Jesus down to kind of make everything right? What is God's purpose in suffering? Well, to understand this necessity, I think we have to understand the word propitiation. It gets all the way back to the very beginning when we said it's fitting, it's entirely appropriate that God would bring about salvation in this way, that Jesus would have to suffer. We have got to understand this word propitiation. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We'll get to this next week. See this fitting, I want you to connect the word fitting or appropriate or necessary in verse 10 to verse 17, where it says, therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So, so there's something like God is binding himself. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I want you to see this, is saying that there was this necessity, there was, there was this 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 thing about Jesus's redemption, about salvation that was necessary. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So I want you to think about that word propitiation. This is why Jesus had to suffer. What does this word propitiation mean? If you've been around Crosspoint for any length of time, I know you've heard us explain this and and you're going to hear it again because it's such an important word. In fact, I think if you understand the concept, the biblical concept of propitiation, you are at the very heart, you're at the ground zero of of an explanation of the gospel. What does this word propitiation mean? I know it's a a word that we don't use in common English very often, but, but I want you to understand it. It means to appease, to satisfy the wrath of God. It means to take away God's wrath. Now, this is why Jesus had to suffer. This is half of the reason, I think, why Jesus had to suffer, because what human, what, and this is what he's going to get into later on in Hebrews, what bull, what lamb, what animal sacrifice could finally and fully satisfy God's holiness? Nothing. So the only thing that can satisfy, the only thing that can absorb, the only thing that can extinguish God's wrath. Is the only thing that can satisfy, think of it this way, the holiness of God is the holiness of God itself. And so Jesus in his incarnation becomes completely like us, yet without sin. So he's obedient to God, but he's not just man, he's also God. And so Jesus is the only one, he's the only candidate. He's the only person that can propitiate, that can appease, that can satisfy, that can extinguish, that can Spurgeon in the 1800s put it this way, who can drink the cup of damnation dry. Because what sin deserves is death and the only death that will satisfy all of the punishment for God's holiness is the death of God the Son himself on the cross. So when you see this word propitiation, I want you to think about that, that Jesus is is this, this satisfaction. He is this, this, this one who finally and fully absorbs, extinguishes, removes, dries up, all of God's wrath. Think of it this way. He, he's, think of like the flood as a, a kind of judgment. It is judgment in the Old Testament. And think of Jesus. Think of water as a sign of God's judgment. Because it is. We see that in Genesis chapter 6. And the flood of God's judgment should be upon our heads. And Jesus dries up the floodwaters of God's wrath on the cross through his suffering. But but that's just half of it. That's just half of propitiation. Propitiation isn't merely just the satisfying of God's wrath because now his wrath has been removed, but we need more than just guilt absolved To be reconciled to God, we need to be not just morally neutral, we need to be righteous. And so what Jesus has done, and again, this is why it's necessary that Jesus had to suffer, is that not only did he suffer to bear God's wrath, but now his righteousness, all of his obedience now has been given to us. And so propitiation carries with this this idea, not just to satisfy wrath and remove it, but to then turn what previously was wrath into favor. And Jesus has done that by his righteousness. So Paul, I think before one of the songs that we sang, spoke about this from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that he became sin for us. Removed the guilt of our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he's a merciful high priest who takes away God's wrath and gives us his righteousness. So now we can stand before the Lord. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his. And he does this through his suffering on the cross. Which then leads us to verse 11. Now, verse 11. Verse 11 is is glorious. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Brothers. Now I want you to see this, this glorious truth here in the first part of verse 11. It says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. We talk a lot about salvation here, propitiation. The wrath of God is satisfied and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. And here's this sort of mystery that I think you need to see. This truth about salvation is that there's some there are some already not yet aspects to being a Christian in this life. In one sense... When you trust in Jesus, when he gives you a new heart and you put your faith in Jesus, what happens in that moment, that is that's regeneration. God gives you a new heart and at regeneration, immediately you're justified. Your sins are forgiven and immediately you are adopted into the family of God. And immediately you're made his, you're set apart for for God, you're his. And even this is glorious. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse thirty that you are already glorified. This, this process of sanctification, is this process of salvation is so certain that you are already glorified. Ephesians 1 puts it this way, that upon salvation, or Ephesians 2, you are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's true of you if you're a Christian right now. But then you begin this process of sanctification whereby you are growing, this is what word sanctification means, to be changed by one degree, slowly, from one thing to another. That's, that's the heart of sanctification, to be set apart, to grow, to become more and more Christ-like over your life. And what happens in, here's this mystery and glory of the work of salvation, is that you are becoming who you already are in Christ by his work in your life. And let me show that to you, even in Hebrews itself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. The writer says this. For by... You guys know I love this verse if you've been around Crosspoint for a while. this, this Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 14 is a, is a verse worth underlining. And if you're the type of person who doesn't like writing in your Bible, I need you to get over that. And I need you to underline or highlight or do whatever you do with colored pencils to Hebrews 10 verse 14 this is this is this verse makes sense of the tension and the struggle and the strain of the Christian life Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 is a kind of lens by which the Christian life makes more sense to us if we will look through it often he says And I realize I'm parachuting down into a chapter which has a context, but just trust me, I think I'm getting the context right. And we'll eventually get to Hebrews chapter 10 when we get there. But he says, for by a single offering, meaning the cross, meaning his work, he has perfected. meaning he's propitiated your sin. He's absorbed the wrath of God. So think about that. He has perfected you. You, you can be no more loved by Jesus and by God than you are at the moment that He regenerates your heart and you're His. You're justified. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time. So there's, there's no, there's no in a sense, what the first part of verse 14 is saying, that there's no becoming anything. You, you in a sense, are already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified so my question is this why do those that have already been perfected need to be sanctified do you see that tension do you see that kind of that conflict there well the only logical answer is Is that in God's glorious gospel economy and guarantee, he has promised that you will make it all the way home, that you will be glorified. That's why Romans 830 says that you are already glorified, but you're living now in time and you are beginning the process of sanctification, growing in him fighting sin, taking God's side against your sin, saying no to this and yes to God, you are being sanctified. So here's the way I would summarize verse 14 of Hebrews 10 is that the Christian life is the, the journey of becoming who we are guaranteed, in fact, we already are in Christ. But it is a necessary journey and God uses that journey as a means of witness To the others that he's bringing to glory. That's why you exist. That's why you're still here. That's why he hasn't beamed you up Scotty. Under the Starship Enterprise. Or whatever it's called. Those goofy shows that I don't watch anymore. Do You see that. For he sanctifies. He who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified all have one source. So that's the process of sanctification. What does it mean that they have one source? It means that God is our father. Jesus is, this is where verse 11 gets so glorious. The reason that's true is because the writer of Hebrews says that the one who's doing the sanctifying, that's Jesus, and the ones who are being sanctified, that's us, all have one source. We come from one head we we are children of the same source we all come from one we are in Christ and Christ is from the father so what that verse is saying in verse 11 the first part of it is that the reason this is true is because Jesus has come and he's bound himself to his people and we are in him we are united to him by faith we're his he's in us and we're in him. And we come from God the Father. Jesus has come from God. We are in him. Therefore, we are in him. So what's true of Jesus is true of us. And that's why the second part of this verse, and so glory says, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, if that doesn't make you want to fly to Philadelphia and go to those steps, where that statue of one of the greatest Italian Americans of all time, Rocky Balboa, is, and I know I realize he's a fictional character, but you know what I get, I mean? And shadow box on the top of those steps while I the tiger plays in the background. I don't know what will. This is saying that Jesus, for the people that are being sanctified for Christians that are still struggling with sin, That he has said will make it all the way home. That he's going to bring to glory. So they're already perfected. While they're being sanctified. Jesus is not ashamed. To call you a brother or sister. Um, We we all have some family members and friends that. uh, You know what I mean? And you just, uh, maybe maybe you bring your boyfriend or girlfriend to Thanksgiving for the first time, the relationship is serious, and you're thinking this could be the one, and you take her or him home, and that crazy uncle just shows up, you know, (laughs) or that strange cousin. And you just kind of wince. Or maybe, let's not even be silly or cute about it, maybe, maybe, um. Maybe there's a, a family member of yours that's done some really horrible things and you're, you're embarrassed about that. And any time the conversation gets close to it, you kind of try and divert the conversation away from that loved one or family member of yours that's embarrassed the family because you just you'd rather not go there. Well, here's, here's the good news of the gospel. On some level or another, each of us are that embarrassing family member. And Jesus brings you up. And he says, I'm not ashamed to call this one my brother and my sister. Bring it up. Bring it up. What have they done? That's mine. I've died for that sin, devil. The accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, is thrown down. And the people of God overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Jesus brings it up. And you know what he says to God? Verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So he says to God, he comes down into the midst of the congregation. I don't have time to do this because we need to come around the Lord's table here. But what Psalm verse 12 is doing is, is quoting Psalm 22, which is a psalm about Jesus on the cross where he says, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And then he, after he meditates on the cross, he says... To God, this is Jesus on the cross crying out to the Father, I will tell of your name. So he says to God, I'm going to tell about you, Father, to my brothers here. And where's Jesus? He's not up in heaven saying, yeah, this is, was this one, you know, Lord, we, we should, you know, he, he really messed up. And gosh, he's, you know, let's just kind of let him in the back door. Just sort of this ashamed, hush-hush whisper. He says, no. He stands in the midst of the congregation and he says, I will sing your praise. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He gets right into the middle of the awkward conversation. He, he knows everything that we have done. We're the people that he would be ashamed of in a worldly sense, but he's not. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has done. And so in just a moment when we come to the Lord's table, what's the glorious truth of the gospel? Is that Jesus has suffered and died. He is not ashamed of you. He's, He's not ashamed of you. He knows the worst thing about you, dear one. He knows the thing that if we open the books, you would be most mortified about. Yet He loves you. If you're in Christ, you are His and He is yours. And He's promised that He's sanctifying you and He's going to bring you all the way home. He will bring many sons. Every single one of them, He's going to bring them home to glory. He's not going to lose any of them on the ride because He was too ashamed. I'm not ashamed to call them brothers, Jesus says. So in just a moment, we're going to come to the table and we're going to take a piece of bread and we're going to take a cup and we're going to eat that bread. It's the representation of the broken body of Jesus and the cup is the representation of the symbol of the spilled blood of Jesus. And it needs to be a reminder to us that Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. You take the worst thing about you. And you lay it there at the foot of that table, at the foot of that cross. And you remember what Jesus thinks about you. And friends, don't stay there because this is, he says, you are being sanctified, not so that you can run back to that thing that causes you shame and sit in it, but because the love of God is so beautiful. It's so consuming that you want more of it and you get more of a taste for that. You want that type of freedom rather than the shame that that thing that you're sitting in now causes you, so run to Jesus. That's the point of Hebrews. The point of Hebrews is hold fast to him. He's a better savior. He offers a better word than the law. The law says don't do it, but gives you no solution. It doesn't tell you how you can be freed from it, but the gospel is better news. It says Jesus is sweeter. Yes, I know what you've done, but I'm not ashamed of you. So come to me, come to me, eat and feast on me. It's better by far. So let's come to the table, and let's do that. Prince, he's not ashamed; he's not ashamed. Lord, help us. Help us taste, see, and feel this. Lord, objectively, I think most of us know the gospel. But Lord, I want to feel it down in my bones today. I need to feel it. I need to Behold, Tyler read it earlier, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's who we are. Lord, I need to remember that as I come to this table. I'm your child who you are not ashamed, and you stand in the midst of this congregation of people who are struggling with sin, and you cry out to the Father, these are my people. Let me feel that as I take this bread and this cup today. And all of my brothers and sisters that are Christians are welcome to do it. If they're not believers, Lord, I pray that they would not receive this table. It's not for them. We love them. We're glad they're here. But this is for believers. Lord, let us remember you are not ashamed. In Jesus' name, Lord, I pray.